When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, Jim, we've recorded our podcast, more than 300 episodes, in all kinds of places and conditions. And just a couple of doors down from my office and where I'm working now, a band has started practicing I share this building with a music instructor. That sounds great to me. I think I'd feel right at home. Well, I've got a construction crew moving a bunch of rocks next door, so I can probably match you distraction for distraction. Okay, well, let's talk about the topic today, which is Tough Lessons from Economics, Veronique Derugy. When you end up looking at who gets subsidized, there are overwhelmingly when you follow the money big companies people don't go to the barricades to fight for distortions and economic inefficiency but they should go to the barricade to fight unfairness and cronyism is unfair Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Right from the beginning on How Do We Fix It, you and I have said we'd be committed to fruitful disagreement, that we could learn a lot through honestly debating the things we don't always agree on. And in the last few months, we've started coming up against more topics where you and I really do have some fundamental disagreements. For example, I'm worried that President Biden's massive spending proposals will burden future taxpayers like our kids and the economy. Whereas I'm more open to ideas about having the government fund childcare, make basic health care affordable to all, and provide Internet service in rural areas. Our guest today is economist Veronique Derugy. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and she writes a popular syndicated column looking at economics from basically a free market or libertarian perspective. However, if you're one of our conservative listeners, don't get too comfortable. Veronique is a blistering critic of what she sees as government bloat on both sides of the aisle, especially the bipartisan tendency to prop up crony capitalism. Nobody gets a free pass today. Veronique joins us from Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. So, What do you think is the key difference between how economists analyze public policy and the way most of us ordinary people do? What can we learn from economists? I mean, the first one, I think, will be to quote Thomas Sowell, like there are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. 
Um, it means that uh, it's very often in the realm of politics that when a program, a policy position is sold, uh, we are only told, for instance, its benefits, but none of its cost. There are trade-offs everywhere and all the time. And the question is, what trade-off can we live with? And what trade-off can we uh, try to avoid? And this is kind of a conversation that economists have, but just very few other people do. And what's the other difference between how economists view policies and how the rest of us debate them? The other thing, and it's related, I guess, is um, the fact that economists are not just satisfied with the first effect, the first level effect of a policy. And we look at everything, um, every, like all the, the second uh, effect, the third effect. So for instance, you tax people to raise more money for a cause that everyone agrees is a great cause. The question is going to be, it's not just kind of how much money are you going to get, but what kind of reaction are you going to get down the road of taxpayers changing their behaviors, um, allocating their capital differently, and who is going to shoulder that burden? Uh, very often, it's not the person who actually writes the check to the IRS that shoulders the biggest economic burden. And so economists really look at these incidents that in politics, just no one really quite cares about. Veronique, um, I'm doing my side of the podcast um, here on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I took a walk this morning with our dog and went past a sign on a building that said, tax the rich, house the poor. And my heart said, yes, that's justice. That's the, that's the right thing to do. But as a liberal, why should I have problems with that? The question is actually, is this a policy that is going to be able to achieve the goal that you want? And very likely the answer is not really. You're, you'll get something, but you're very unlikely to get what you really want. There are several reasons. First, um, it depends on how you want to tax the rich. If the idea is to have a very progressive tax system, well, our income tax system is already really progressive. Progressive, which in taxation means that higher income people usually pay a larger share than lower income people. And rich pay really a bigger share, disproportionate to how much money they actually make as a share of the of the of the of the income and things like this. And uh, now it's it it remains true even if you had the payroll tax and uh, and I was surprised about this, but it remains likely true when you even when you add um, state taxes. So it's it's already a progressive system. Now does that mean you couldn't make it more? But back to those secondary and third and fourth, you're not never going to get the kind of money that you're hoping to get. If you look at European countries, how do European countries raise most of their money? With very regressive taxes. A lot of payroll tax, a value-added tax, a lot of fees on, on stuff, multiple fees on the same uh, things, right? And, and, and that's like this mistake, is like there's this, this mystique that we can infinitely tap 
the income of rich people, and they're going to just let it happen. What about a wealth tax? Wealth tax sounds, you know, like a pleasant idea uh, to a lot of progressives, liberals, and made the reality because it's been tried in Europe a lot. In fact, most of many of them had a, a wealth tax, and now very few of them have. Is that actually you see a ton of of wealth going right? People are just not going to sit still and and let you tax. They're going to reorganize their wealth. Thus, wealth is just really hard to kind of really understand what it is like to to really kind of pin down what is it i mean what's the value of a, a painting collection of, or like a, a wine collection all that stuff so administrative costs are great but also the reality is like when you tax wealth what ends up happening is like there's actually less capital there's this misconception about wealth that we have that it's like you know gold bar under the bed but really a lot of the time wealth is accumulated as businesses or, or capital that is lent. Okay, so taxing the rich is difficult and more complicated than most of us understand. What about that demand to house the poor? Um, the problem on that side is that government officials, very often, they make decisions not necessarily actually based on what would achieve their targets the best, but a lot of it is special interest. And as a result, you have a lot of housing projects that are just not where they should be, not what they should be. They're like, they have cost overrun. There's like all sorts of things. So the the result is always really disappointing. And I will, I will finish with this. We spend a lot of money at the state and federal level trying to alleviate poverty. And you've got to be kind of wondering if this money was actually truly going to alleviate poverty and to help poor people, we'd still not be having these conversations. So what you're saying is that how we talk about economics and I guess also public policy in very often these terms of slogans or headlines is way too simplistic. Yes, and it's true on both sides, by the way. I mean, it's it's absolutely true on both sides. There's a lot of things that conservatives are saying that are just, it's so much more. It's always more, or libertarians for that matter. As I go in my career, what I'm realizing is how much more complicated things are. And like nothing is actually black and white. You know, like when people talk about the big techs having monopolies, this is so reductive that it's 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 meaningless but the truth of the matter is like people who study these issues closely will tell you actually there's a lot of competition within each of their business activities they're they're in fierce competition either with one another or with other people um and so everything is so much more complicated than we think give us an example of something that you've changed your mind on where you, uh, that that from your perspective, something where you've maybe tempered some of your your free market or libertarian leanings uh, in in studying an issue. Because it's one thing to kind of be an ideologue and believing in one state of the world, and it's a whole other one to actually kind of figuring out what is true or not. Sometime I've realized that things were just way, way, 
way more complicated than I thought, for instance, like with capital gains tax, I thought it was like straightforward that if you raise them, you would get much, much less, you know, there's just, but there are nuances that I just like failed to appreciate. But let me, let me give you a concrete example. There's a big debate right now about lower income Americans and who are stuck in places where there's no jobs and no mobility and high unemployment. I've managed through all the research that I've done to kind of say actually the arguments that it's that China is responsible, the competition with China is responsible for it all. I know this is a bunk argument, right? Technology pays probably a bigger part, but it also doesn't explain why these people are stuck. Because historically in the US, when you had a shock, an economic shock, no matter what would cause it, unemployment would go up quite dramatically. But as people would find new jobs or leave the area, unemployment would go back down. We don't have that anymore. People seems to be seem to be staying in places where unemployment is high, there are fewer jobs, wages are low. This is different. This is very different. So part of it can be explained. A lot of government regulations that makes mobility out of a place like this hard. So we can talk about land use and and zoning and all of that stuff that make that make the the opportunity move of, of moving to a place with higher wages. That wage premium would be eaten away by the cost of housing. So part of what you're saying is, for instance, you're living in, say, rural Oregon, where there are no jobs, yeah. and you go, I want to move to San Francisco. But if you try and move to San Francisco, the rents are so incredibly high, and there's such a shortage of housing that you can't move. Yeah. That wage increase that you would likely get, I mean, is like eaten away entirely by the cost of housing. There are things like disability insurance, which allows people effectively to stay unemployed, and they would prefer to stay in those places where they there are no jobs and they are like and where their family is, right? I mean, so there we can find a lot of things, but it doesn't explain it all. I get that this is a problem. My problem, and this is where I want to come back to the to the libertarian free market stuff, is when I try to think about, okay, we have this problem. What can the government do? I'm yet to come up with a satisfactory solution about what can be done. We've been talking a lot about programs that are geared to help the poor, but a lot of what the government does is geared, whether explicitly or, or you know, in its ultimate effects, on helping people and companies that are already quite affluent and quite successful. One thing you've criticized a lot through your career is the Export-Import Bank, something most people have really barely heard of. Can you explain what the Export-Import Bank is and, and why you think it's, it's such a, a problem or such a great example of the shortcomings of certain government programs? Yeah. So the Export-Import Bank, we call it also XM, um, is an agency. It's a credit export agency. And what it does, uh, financial products, mostly to foreign companies, but also to domestic companies, so they can, uh, in order to boost American exports of goods. That's, that's what XM does. So the whole idea behind it is made in the USA, it helps boost companies um, export more products overseas. 
Yes. And at a second level, um, the idea is also that export somehow holds some magical power to create economic growth. And the government should try to help company export as much as possible because this will actually benefit us. So so that sounds pretty good. What's wrong with it? Well, so there's, there's so many things that are wrong with it. Import is seen as a cost and export is seen as like this great benefit for economic growth. Because imports are made and produced by companies overseas. Overseas, and we the, send like the, the analogy is like we send our dollar there when and when when we talk think about exports, like those foreigners give us their their money. Well, the truth is the way trade economists think about it is exactly the reverse. That actually import is really the value that we get from trade. It's like it gets us stuff that we would get at a lower price. And so you create a lot of value by importing, but yet people are always really, really upset about imports. They love exports. The other thing is that um, this notion that export credit industry and subsidizing exports is going to actually create some value in the U.S. because it's going to boost exports of exporters is just not true. We show that there's the academic literature show there's actually a cost to the economy. When the government puts its weight behind a particular export, effectively what it does is that it shifts capital away from projects towards the one that are subsidized. What we see is that it's true that it can boost in the short term the bottom line of the exporters who is being subsidized. But on net to the economy, to all of us, this is a secondary effect that I was telling you about. Actually, it's a net negative. And the reason is because when you subsidize something, so there's a capital distortion that is created, but it's also when you subsidize something, very often the, the, the price of that something goes up. When you end up looking at who gets subsidized, they're overwhelmingly when you follow the money, big companies. Wait, let me break in here because I was looking at their statements and they, the Export-Import Bank claims that most of their transactions benefit small businesses. It is true. Most of their transaction benefits small businesses. Uh, 89% of the transaction benefits small business. But that's meaningless when you want to, when you actually look at how much of the money benefits small businesses. And for the most part, it's roughly 20% of their whole and and more shocking um in regular years 10 large companies benefit domestically uh, from 65 percent of exam activities 10 and one in particular benefit from 40 percent and that is boeing which is why we also call the export import bank the bank of boeing as the non-libertarian in this conversation let me push back. And sure. that is, and, and you took the example of helping an airline buy a Boeing plane. Well, the alternative is that perhaps they'd buy a plane from a European plane manufacturer or a Chinese plane manufacturer. They're getting subsidies from their governments. And so 
they have their own version of the XM Bank. Why not subsidize Boeing? Why not make sure that some of those planes, even in this imperfect market system, are made in the United States rather than in Europe, rather than China? Why should we have our hands, I'm doing this right now, uh, why should we have our hands tied behind our backs? If what you were saying were true, we would have to decide whether this is an acceptable trade-off or not. Yes, it creates distortion, but look, we are selling Boeing planes that would otherwise be Airbus sales, except that this is not how it works. For instance, like, let's take Air Emirates. This is uh, the Air Emirates from the Middle East, a very big airline. Yes, state-owned, that has no problem having access to capital, is like one of the biggest airline clients of the Export-Import Bank gets preferential treatment very regularly from the Export and Poor Bank. And I'll give you, I think, the best example that shows that this is not what the Export and Poor Bank is about. El Al, the Israeli company, that's the plane that they like to buy. That's the plane that fits their routes. And, and most of them are not backed by XM. So why is it? We, a company that has demonstrated that its preference for Boeing plane, yet we continue subsidizing it to buy, to buy other Boeing planes. The number one foreign uh, beneficiary is Pemex, a state-owned oil and gas Mexican company. And is this really what we want to be, who we want to be subsidizing? We're speaking with Veronique de Rougy, a free market and libertarian economist, more about aid to crony capitalists, the unfair taxation system, and her years of research into the Exim Bank. Coming up, this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Now a word about another podcast from our partners at the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Are you concerned about how America is reeling from a global pandemic, a tumultuous transfer of power, and ongoing polarization? Try the Science of Politics podcast. The Science of Politics, hosted by Matt Grossman, will give you a data-driven understanding of what's going on behind the scenes in American politics with the latest empirical studies and without the partisan punditry. The Science of Politics is produced by the Niskanen Center, a nonpartisan national think tank. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Now back to our interview with Veronique de Rougy and her criticism of crony capitalism. Companies that get special deals and cheap loans from the government paid for by taxpayers. You wrote recently that one reason you've, you've worked so much on the Export-Import Bank is that it's such a good example of how this kind of crony capitalism will creep into all kinds of well-intentioned government programs. What's another example of a program that started out looking really good on paper, but that wound up funneling a lot of taxpayer money to fat cats? I think most of them. This is one of the common feature of crony capitalism is that when you look closely, you realize that the biggest beneficiaries are not the small businesses, are actually much bigger business. This is true of every loan guaranteed program in the federal government. The biggest winners of all of this are the banks that are guaranteeing these loans. It's the private bank that issues the loan. And what the SBA does is that it guarantees 85% of that loan. If the small business defaults, then the bank is fine and taxpayer pick up the bill. And so the banks love it because they don't shoulder any of the risk. So you're saying that under this system, the banks earn the profits, but they're not exposed to the risk. The taxpayers shoulder yes. those. They're, the taxpayers are exposed. And there's another aspect that no one ever really talks about, which is that there's a very vibrant, during good times, very vibrant secondary market for these loan guaranteed. And so these these banks, they end up selling that loan guarantee to you know other, other people. In the end, they make a really nice return on equity. Those are the, the problems with, with some of these government programs. But I don't want this idea to go completely unchallenged. My daughter runs two yoga studios. We have dear friends who are restaurant owners. We've just been through the ravages of COVID. Those businesses have been horribly affected by no fault of their own. They have been helped by government loan programs in this awful crisis. There is time for government to help small businesses. It may not be done efficiently. It may not be done the way it should be. But the idea that the government, especially in times of economic hardship or in places of economic hardship, should simply do nothing, sit on its hands, and have a libertarian free market approach, to me, is it causes unnecessary damage. You know, there, there are inefficiencies in, in these government programs. There's inefficiencies in the way the free market allocates capital. There are stupid bank loans being made to ridiculous companies all the time. Read the Wall Street Journal. You'll see it a lot. So, I mean, I, I don't think that it's just one simple, you know, problem with, with, with all of this. So, yeah, I mean, arguably and during hard times, especially like COVID, when governors are closing down the economy, there's no doubt that there's a case for the government to step in and help. My preference would always be that we lend to people. And Arnold Kling and I had, uh, we wrote a paper about actually having a line of credit for individuals, irregardless whether they're a business owner, basically every checking account would get a line of credit backed by the government, um, 
because it's it's not it's it's in ultimately it's always people that matter it's like the corporate income tax is not paid by corporation ultimately it's economic cost is shouldered by people and so um we we made the case that this idea of just of, of just focusing on on businesses was was inappropriate and also to do a line of credit like this it was going to be proportional it would be it's easy to do instantly your bank account everyone in the country who has a checking account would have a uh, would have a line of credit backed by the government really low rate that they can use or not use and that would be a better place i just want to actually challenge this idea that actually cronyism is just some inefficiency it's just freaking unfair that your competitor next to you he's actually gotten a loan a cheaper loan than you do favor of the of the taxpayers and yet you're competing in a very 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 concentrated industry and it's always like this people don't go to the barricades to fight for distortions and economic inefficiency but they should go to the barricade to fight unfairness and cronyism is unfair in during during the covid crisis xm created four facilities two arguably three of these lending facilities were specifically meant to help boeing and i'm sorry it's absolutely absolutely unfair there these are not just distortions this are not just about paying paying a few cents more on your on your tickets it's unfair our podcast is how do we fix it how do we fix this problem how do we um reduce the impact of crony capitalism of well-connected companies getting paybacks and and getting special treatment that they don't deserve so their only way is just basically to make it impossible my solution is really we shouldn't actually there shouldn't be any transfer government granted privilege to any companies to any private companies except maybe in emergencies and even then i think it should be going through individuals more than companies politicians on the right and on the left they respond to special interests who come and tell them i really need this i really want this i really would really help me without it i can make it right but what politicians never hear is all the unseen victims of these programs let's take another example of unfairness well connected wealthy and well off people who get tax breaks would the tax system be better if it was simpler right now you need an accountant to explore the deductions and write-offs from a very complicated tax code yeah i know i agree with you but i mean granted we have an incredibly uh complicated tax system and we have a very unfair tax system ideally we would actually really reform and kind of go completely differently about how we tax income right now we have a very dif difficult definition about the way we conceive of income which leads to the need for all these tax breaks but you're right there's just, it's and cronyism is very very prevalent in our tax code too we're talking about problems with the way government uses its power and and spends our money right now we're facing one of the biggest surges in government spending in in, in US history how long can this go on? 
that's a 23 or 28 trillion dollar question uh, really <laughs> uh, no one knows really i mean debt crisis especially for a country like the us they take a long time to build and to be honest i thought we would have actually seen a raise an increase in interest rates and and inflation long before today i was wrong about about that too and like many others um and but at some point it will happen arnold Kling uh likes to say my colleague that it's like claiming that it will never happen because it hasn't happened is like kind of like looking at a guy who jumps from the 10th floor and uh and asking him on the fifth floor how are you doing and he says so far so good but the one that is more more likely is like a sudden burst of inflation the thing that we need to understand though about high debt is like it has a cost independently it costs a lot of money to have debt we've actually uh spent uh 365 or 45 billion dollars last year on paying interest on the debt it's a lot of money it's five trillion dollars <laughs> and 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 paying interest on the debt and so at some point it starts consuming stuff and also it hurts it hurts growth a final question you mentioned that you were wrong about inflation kicking in before it has are there other areas where we should be humble when it comes to economics we should be humble all the time we like literally we should be humble all the time it's so much more complicated i've been studying xm for over seven years. and That's the Exim Bank, right? Yeah. There's always something I realized I didn't quite understand. And the, the difficulty when economists are talking is like we're always asking, people are always asking us to talk to people as if they're in fifth grade or, or like, and, and media likes black and white, right? But the truth of the matter is like, it's so much more complicated and it doesn't fit neatly in a, in a soundbite. The market, the market is certainly not perfect, but the advantage it has over uh, the government not being perfect is like it first private sector actors are losing their own money, not taxpayers, but it's also markets adjust and they, they try to correct, um, they try to correct things. Again, it doesn't mean that it's going to produce the ideal version of the world that we that we want to see but then the question is always what's the alternative the question is like okay you see a state of the world that you don't like what do you do about it and very often i'm disappointed that those who are pushing for big government intervention just refuse to actually even look at whether this is going to be addressing that problem and the trade-offs that exist or, or even the consequences. Veronique Derugy, thank you very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Veronique Derugy speaking with us here on How Do We Fix It? And now our recommendation. My recommendation this week, Richard, is a really neat podcast about creativity. It's called The Moment. And it's by Brian Koppelman, who's a very well-regarded screenwriter. He was involved in the movie Ocean's 13, Rounders, and others. 
And what he does is bring really interesting creative people onto the podcast with them. And they just talk about the creative process, how it works, how they get inspiration, how they refine ideas. And he's had a whole host of amazing people on. Director Ron Howard, Elvis Costello, Liz Fair, a lot of musicians, the music producer Rick Rubin, who's worked with everybody from, you know, Jay-Z to Johnny Cash. So it's really just a wonderful way to learn more about how creative people think. I guess we can see from this conversation with Veronique why they call economics the dismal science. Well, you know, <laughs> and, economists are often the ones who have to say, hold on a second. These, this wonderful idea you have that sounds so great may have some trade-offs or problems you haven't anticipated. I, I feel like that's actually one of the real key distinctions that I see between idealistic progressives and at least the kind of old school conservatives, progressives tend to be really focused on the ethical goal they have, which is which are noble goals, they're good goals, but not particularly hung up on really seeing what the downstream effects are. And ironically, many of the programs that are set up with all these great intentions wind up not just being expensive or not working as well as they should, they wind up actually hurting the poor. They're hurting the very people that progressives are trying to help. Although I would also level the same charge at, at, at Republicans in the Trump administration for their attempt to change the tax code by giving a tax break to corporations that they said wouldn't harm the deficit and actually ballooned the deficit in the years that that covered. So sometimes the unintended consequences of policies fall on both sides, which is something I'm sure you agree with. Absolutely. And does yeah. too. One thing I have to push back on, though, is taxes on corporations are taxes paid by people. Well, of course they are. All taxes are. And you could make the argument, based on what Veronique is saying, is that corporations should be taxed at the same rate as people are, which would actually increase uh, the tax rate on corporations. The average person doesn't pay very high uh, doesn't pay very high income taxes. It's a, it's a, the wealthy pay the vast majority of of income taxes in this country. So what 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 person would you take as your baseline? Baseline could be thirty three percent or twenty twenty five percent, which is higher than the current rate for corporations. My point is is that this isn't a penalty. All of us have to pay for the government that we choose to have, whether that's a small government or a large one, and us. Uh, by the conservative argument, includes corporations. So I'm not quite sure why there's a big fuss on the right for differentiating corporations and, and individuals. Everybody pays taxes. We had one of the higher corporate tax rates in the world, so businesses had incentives to not set up in the U.S., but set up in other countries. If we're going to tax individuals at, 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 a, at a certain rate, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't tax all corporations at that rate as well. Does it work, though? Does it actually, is it the best way to generate money for the economy? What is the most efficient and way to raise money in the economy without hurting the disadvantaged? And if corporations that are heavily taxed shut down, move overseas, who suffers? Their workers. Yeah, the real value of this episode for people like me who don't agree with everything that Veronique is saying is that 
our arguments, our view of the world is sharpened by listening to people who make us feel uncomfortable. And Veronique is one of those people who I think could make both sides uncomfortable. Absolutely. And, and, and herself, I, one of her comments that I really love was the importance of humility, that as an economist, you're often learning that your early or ideological takes on issues don't always explain everything. The world is complex. We all need a little humility as we analyze proposals. This is a big struggle for me, but I'm going to engage in a little humility and end this conversation. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, How Do We Fix It? It's a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for nonprofits and other concerns as well. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.